Well, as Ray said uh, just a few moments ago, we start a series today called Circles of Influence. And when this series began, it was designed to give us an opportunity to bring in people that were influencing our thinking. Well, nine months ago, I met a guy by the name of Jeremy Courtney, and he has, for the last nine months, influenced my thinking and the thinking of the leadership here at Parkview as we evaluate our role in the greater world around us. And so we have invited Jeremy to come and speak to you this morning, and I was here in the first service and was um, amazed, in awe of the story of preemptive love and the story of he and his wife, Jessica, and the work that they do. Jeremy is a writer, he's a dad, he's a husband, and he's an activist in a part of the world. He's bringing love and compassion to a part of the world that we hear about daily in the news. So we've asked him to come and share. So will you welcome him to the stage, Jeremy Courtney. Thanks. That song, um, I don't know if that's a normal song for you. I heard it for the first time this morning. and That song's dynamite. Yeah. I mean, if we, there's a lot of songs that just roll off the tongue pretty easily. We have a lot of anthems, right, that we can just join along with and maybe not even give a lot of thought to what we're saying. But, but that song, if we actually believed and lived like that song was true, if we actually walked out of here with that song in our hearts, that that kind of power lives in us, it would change everything. It would, it would change absolutely everything. I know it would change everything for us in Iraq. And in fact, it is the essence of that song that has changed so much for us in Iraq. It is, it is that song and that idea that God's power, that love, that sea calming, rage calming, violence unmaking, love and power that lives in us is accessible to us, is able to be appropriated by us and lived out by us. That's what's changed everything. It was the summer of 2014, two years ago, in Iraq. The, the sun was blazing down, hot summer, just like right now. And far away from the peaceful pools and the waterfalls in the Kurdish mountains, down in the plains, between the Tigris and Syria, there was a poisoned geyser that was about to erupt. The Arab Spring had long since turned to winter. And Bashar al-Assad, the dictatorial leader of Syria, was embarking on a brutal campaign of chemical attacks and mass extermination against any who dared to raise their voice in revolt, call for reform. And as the springs of revolution trickled toward the desert sands, they watered and fed this nefarious cancer that was already growing. In Fallujah, back in Iraq, up into the Mosul part of Iraq, this, this corridor that had been so plagued by violence since the overthrow of Saddam Hussein in Iraq in 2003. 
And on that June day, two years ago in 2014, hope evaporated entirely. And the poison geyser finally erupted in the city of Mosul when this group that we now know internationally as ISIS took control of the city and all the surrounding villages and marked all Muslims and all Christians and all Yazidi and Shebak and Kekai and Turkmen who would not bow the knee and marked them for extermination. We were a few hours away still at that point, but the ISIS army was advancing, marauding its way across Iraq and across those deserts, and there was seemingly no one in the way to stop them. There were very few international aid organizations left in Iraq at that point, after the U.S. Army and their financial largesse had pulled out. Oil companies were pulling their staff. Missionary organizations were pulling their staff. But over 10 years of living and working across Iraq, we've made a lot of friends throughout the region. In the Sunni heartland of Mosul and of Fallujah, political elites in Baghdad, Shia ayatollahs in the holy city of Najaf. We leaned on these friends heavily for insights as ISIS was making their way across the country as to how we should respond to this terror to this army, to this emerging geopolitical threat in the world that was kidnapping and killing thousands and thousands of people, taking over so much of the land where we worked and lived and loved. And so as the planes leaving the country filled up and ticket prices skyrocketed even more and more, we decided to stay. In Iraq now, ISIS has gone on to slaughter 10, maybe 20,000 Yazidis and Assyrian Christians. If we were to be able to account for all the Muslim deaths caused by ISIS, the number would be far greater than anything that these minorities have even experienced. Over 3.4 million people have been displaced from their homes, about 10% of the entire country. 10% of the entire country has been driven out of their homes and out of their homeland. And they now live in a state of destruction and displacement. This is a little bit of what that looks like. From tents to abandoned buildings to shipping containers, all of which are freezing in the winter and melting in the summer. Across the street in Syria, the numbers are even higher and the situation is even more complex. Together, it makes for the greatest humanitarian disaster in our lifetime. And we call this place home. That used to be a city. It used to be a neighborhood. Walking through this rubble, I found some of the most harrowing things I've ever seen in my life. The image of a plush toy dog comes to mind. Some little two-year-old's toy was just laying there amongst the rubble. A woman's red bra over here, something that 
would be shameful in many cultures to have displayed about, but certainly in a conservative culture like this, to see something so intimate and personal laid bare for everyone to see who would dare to walk back through this destroyed neighborhood. It was a very, it is a very disturbing scene every time we go to these villages where lives have been destroyed and homes have been brought down to nothing. But in addition to all this genocide and the geopolitical brinksmanship that was playing out around us, villages, entire cities being destroyed, in addition to all that, our personal lives were coming undone in the months leading up to that ISIS invasion. Our family in Iraq had been deeply betrayed by the person closest to us, a local Muslim friend that we called brother and our kids called uncle. A man who had the keys to our kingdom, a man in whose home our children stayed the night as a fellow family member. We traveled the country with him. We traveled the world with him. When I translate his name into English, it literally means refugee because he was born on the run from a tyrant. Refugee was a man beset by great trauma, as most, if not all of our friends in Iraq and Syria are, having lived through so many decades of tyranny and terrorism and police state surveillance. And the research shows us that trauma does not only unmake the mind and the emotions. Trauma actually unmakes the body itself, causing chemical pathways to reroute and actually inhibiting our body from being the person we once were. And so our dear friend, refugee, after years of trauma, body, mind, soul, all coming undone under tyranny and terrorism, ended up becoming the very dictator that he himself so despised. He insinuated himself into every area of our lives until, as best we could make out, he was actually implanting microphones and listening devices into our bedroom and into our living room, stealing files from our computers. He manipulated facts and turned them into so-called evidence against us that he used to open up 10-plus lawsuits against our family and against our organization. He used these things to incite tribal elements against us, people calling for our death. He threatened our children. He broke into our home with the police, stole our truck. He had us put on a federal no-fly list and told the government that our work among Muslims who were different than his kind of Muslim actually was tantamount to materially supporting terrorism. We had our passports stolen by the government and confiscated and had no identity in the country, no legal standing in the country. I was arrested. My wife was arrested. I was put in jail. It was about a year on from the outbreak of ISIS and all their death and destruction then that resurrection arrived on the scene in our life and the life of many of our friends in the form of 
an activist from right here in Chicago. When she arrived, this friend from up the road named Lynn Hybels, we were a shell of ourselves, traumatized, paranoid, always looking over our shoulder, suspicious of everyone and everything, just like so many of our friends around us. Just the kind of people that otherwise would have been very susceptible to some strong army with a strong ideology coming in and saying, we can save you. We can protect you. We had actually become those people ourselves. We traveled the country together with Lynn and introduced her to the harrowing stories of our friends who had barely escaped the swords of ISIS and the tanks who had come to drive out ISIS. Those tanks, those armies, those good guys with guns ended up creating so much destruction and bad things as they came against the bad guys themselves. We were able to introduce Lynn to this friend, Goze, an amazing Yazidi woman who had narrowly escaped ISIS and left her huge house, multiple cars, land, olive orchards, a swimming pool. As ISIS chased them into the mountains, where they were stranded for days on end in the summer sun without food or water. At the base of the mountain, men fought and countless lost their lives. You may have seen, remember seeing this story on CNN or Fox back in August 2014, probably the first time you ever heard the word Yazidi. If you remember that word at all, as these people were sort of cowed up the mountain and forced to sit up there stranded under 130 degrees summer sun, while ISIS surrounded the mountain at the base and their men dared to fight against ISIS, but ISIS outmatched them in every way. Now, to this day, we still find scenes like this across the region. Excuse me for the graphic nature of this, but I, I feel it's important to show you a glimpse of what has become reality for so many. Mass graves. You can be walking in a field and literally walk upon a mass grave like this where scores were killed at a time and their bodies just left out in the open sun until they become bleached and have no identity left. If I've ever been tempted to think that I'm better than these pitiful refugees, that I'm protected, that my wife and my daughter would never ever be subject to this kind of kidnapping, could never be raped like these friends have. And we can never be driven from our homes and forced to live in the desert for years on end because we planned better. We were smarter. We had money. We're better than that. Our religion is better than that. If I ever, ever have been tempted to think that. Goze and her family and their 20 businesses worth million dollars, their cars, their wealth, their big house. 
has forced me to reconsider. The good men in this family, the good men in this village who owned guns to protect themselves from the bad guys with guns were outmatched and overrun. The banks where they stored their money, where they had planned, where they had saved up, were looted and had nothing left. Their gold, that backup currency that they had saved for a rainy day, was stolen. Their passports, their driver's license, their social security cards, anything that gave them standing and identity was taken from them. If you were lucky to escape ISIS at all, whether Christian or Yazidi or Muslim, you likely escaped in your pajamas with nothing else to your name. And so sitting with Goze in her tent, in the mud, with all her sisters and friends gathered around, my wife, Jessica, began telling Lynn about the work that she had been doing among this group of women and her desire to help these women who were becoming like sisters to my wife, Jessica. Her desire to help them get back on their defeat, defying all this death and sadness around them. Jessica had been trying to help Syrian refugees for some time who had come from Aleppo. She wanted them to make the most of this ancient art they had in Aleppo, this ancient art of olive oil soap making. Aleppo's soap, Syrian soap, is famous throughout the region and actually throughout the world. This pure, pure bar of raw soap, just like the old days, just like our great-grandparents and their great-grandparents before them used to make soap. Before chemicals and all this nasty stuff got inside, just the purest art form of lye and oil creating something that could clean up the place. And so as Jessica had been working to try and help Syrian refugees remake their lives, but had not found a lot of success among that group of people, when Lynn arrived on the scene, she was able to reintroduce this idea and say, I want to bring this Syrian soap making to these people who have now been recently displaced and had everything wiped out and taken from them. But these sisters weren't the only ones with fear. They weren't the only ones with voices in their head telling them that they couldn't do it, telling them that they had lost too much or they'd suffered too much or they, were, they didn't have the right education or they didn't have the right pedigree to get the job done. After all these years of living in the Republic of Fear, all these years of trauma that we've endured as a family and terror and violence, all these years of looking over our own shoulders and being paranoid, Jessica herself feared that she could pull this off. She doubted her place in our team, in our organization. She wondered how her ideas would be received. And most of all, perhaps she doubted me and my ability to make space for her in the leadership of the organization. And she doubted my ability or my commitment to give that time back to our family that would be required so that she could peel back a little bit and actually start something for these women because she had been holding down our family for so long. And in those tents, in the mud, in the dirt with all these women, on long drives across the desert, Lynn Hybels shows up and speaks resurrection 
not only into the life and heart of people like Gose, but actually into Jessica's life and into my life. She reached into the dead part of our hearts, these mass graves of Iraq, and she actually called forth life. And it looked a lot like this. When I first stumbled on this scene, it was just bones. It was just death. When the team went back sometime later, we found this scene. Where even amidst death, life refuses to give up. Flowers start blooming up literally through the mass graves themselves until ultimately the entire field is overrun with life. And now we actually use flowers like this in the creation of this soap that women like Gose and Jessica put together. So over these next few months, after Lynn comes into this soil where the good news had been planted so long ago and waters these seeds that have been planted until flowers start to bloom, Jessica and Goze start making this soap and they start calling upon a global sisterhood and they call their soap Sisterhood Soap, this beautiful bar that helps wash away all that's wrong, all that's dirty and stands as this symbol of how things can be put back to right. Things can be cleaned up and people who have been destroyed and lost everything can stand up on their own two feet again and put their lives back in order. And the response around the world has been amazing. We've blown through our inventory multiple times. We've hired lots of new people. We've had to rent out new production and storage facilities. The UN has called and asked us to sell this soap at their global summits. The UN locally in Iraq has called and asked us to produce tens of thousands of bars that can be distributed to refugee camps all over the area so that no longer will the UN be importing soap from China, giving precious aid dollars to some foreign country that doesn't need it, but actually using precious aid dollars internally to create virtuous cycles of job creation so that one group that suffered from ISIS ends up getting paid to create something to serve another group that's been persecuted by ISIS and so that everyone comes up together. We've signed our first hotel partner. And most importantly, with this soap, this one initiative alone, we've been able to put tens of thousands of dollars back into the hands of women like Goze and men whose names you may never know, helping them rebuild their lives. If you don't want refugees coming to America, if you don't like the idea of refugees getting in death boats and daring to cross the Mediterranean into Europe, this is one of the responses that we can take. Job creation at the headwaters of the Syrian and Iraqi refugee crisis. Through this whole process, living as we are in the aftermath of Easter, we found ourselves caught up in this rolling river whose streams make glad the city of God. And these streams have taken us to some amazingly hard places on the front lines against ISIS, where we can see their black flags of death on the horizon. Just a few weeks ago, this truck and another like it, got stranded in the desert. We were taking hundreds of thousands of pounds. We've been taking hundreds of thousands of pounds of food aid out to the people of Fallujah, the front lines, the most dangerous, scary place probably in all of Iraq. 
when the battle for Fallujah set off a couple of weeks ago. We were the first on the scene, the only organization to date to work inside the militarized zone, providing life-saving food and water to people who need it most. And on this day, we were taking out a bunch of food and our trucks broke down. And in the middle of the night, we got word that a 450 car ISIS convoy had broken out in the desert and they were making their way toward our team's position. Our guys stripped down to their underwear. They didn't want their khaki pants and their white shirts to show off in the midnight sky. So they stripped down to nothing where their dark brown skin would blend in a little bit more with the dirt and laid down in the dirt and covered themselves up hoping that if ISIS rolled up on their position, they wouldn't be seen. And sure enough, we get a text message just a short while after, they're right here on us. 80 car ISIS convoy rolls up on our two trucks, gets out and has a meeting right at our trucks, calling others on the phone. We're right at the trucks. If you see the two trucks, that's where we are. Meet us there. Off in the distance, there's airstrikes hitting another section of this ISIS column and half of our team peels off and gets stuck at a checkpoint. Around six in the morning, I get the most blood curdling call of my life. Jeremy, save us, save us. They're killing us. Jeremy, save us. They're killing us. Click. And the call goes dead. A few minutes later, I get this video from a friend. Let's show that. They just bombs. They're attacking us by an airstrike. It was so close. We almost killed. For about 40 hours, we were working on this, this whole situation, trying to get the food out to those who needed it most then the ISIS convoy rolling up on part of the team, then the airstrikes against the other part of the team. We worked with the U.S. Embassy. We worked with CENTCOM. We worked with local tribal leaders to get our team out of this horrific situation. There's one thing I've learned over the last years of widespread betrayal and death and destruction. It is to be grateful for life. My life, my family's life, but also the lives of people like Goze, and the lives of those in her family that she lost, and the lives of my friend like Isan talking here on the video. There's a way, though, when I say I'm grateful for life or I, I, I love life, there's a way to love your life and to love the life of others around you, whether your children or this community. There's a way to love life that actually suffocates life actually cuts it off and kills it, prevents actual living. I think this is what Jesus meant when he said, unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it will remain alone. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. And when he said, if you try to hang on to your life, you will lose it. 
that if you give up your life for my sake, you will find it. The Jesus way to love your life is different from what everyone else means when they say they love their life. The Jesus way is actually through a love that leads to death. And through that death leads back to life. So I'm grateful for that resurrection that comes on the other side of death, that continues to lead us forward as a family and as the preemptive love coalition so that we are constantly trying to go where no one else will go, to love the people that no one else will love, laying down our life so that they can get swept up in the river of renewal as well. And I've flown all the way here from Iraq today. I've left my team still delivering aid on the front lines against ISIS to those who need it most to tell you this. Resurrection is happening in Iraq because the river is flowing and its streams make glad the city of God wherever it goes. And you can dive right in with us. You can actually divert the waters of this river. Our lives actually carve out canals that divert where the gladness flows. Where do you want it to flow? You actually have agency in where renewal happens in Chicago and around the world so that deserts bloom and life even overcomes the mass graves themselves. Because I suspect you've heard about all this death and destruction, but I'm not sure you've heard much about preemptive love. I'm not sure you've heard enough about the resurrection and the life. You've heard about the preemptive strikes, whether from Saddam Hussein or Bashar al-Assad or the US or ISIS. but I'm not sure if you've heard enough about how life comes up out of those preemptive strikes, about how preemptive love can actually unmake violence itself and remake the world. And I'm here to bear witness today. There is a love big enough to change a nation. There is a love big enough to make Syria great again. There is a love big enough to make Iraq awesome. There is a love big enough to make us safe even if we lose our lives. It's a love that strikes first. And so while many of our leaders today say, take back what's yours. Take back that which has been taken from you by the other side. When we have Christian pastors this week standing on the biggest stage in the country trying to tell us that our enemies are people from the other political side. Jesus says, give up your life. When our loudest politicians say, be first, be great. Jesus says, be last, be small. Our Facebook feeds and our cable news say we have everything to fear, including, but not limited to, fear itself. 
I'm here to say there actually is a love big enough that will unmake violence and lessen and loosen the grip of fear itself over our lives and compel us onward to lay down our lives for others. And it's that reality right there that makes this different, I hope, than just some missionary update from the field or another organizational pitch. It's the fact that there is such a thing as preemptive love and it wants your life. It's God's preemptive love in this world in Christ that then claims our life and dares us and calls us to live a life of preemptive love ourselves across Chicagoland and across the world. It's that love that makes all this death and resurrection possible. It's, it's that love that in the pain and the promise becomes your story. The mass graves are yours, just like they are theirs. The kidnapping and the rape of Yazidi girls by ISIS is your story, just like it is theirs. Goze's soap. Jessica's comeback story is yours, just like it is theirs. It's an invitation and an opportunity for you today to enter into the much-hyped violence of Inglewood or the very boring, humdrum, cubicle work that you get to do every day. Whichever way, wherever you fall on the spectrum, preemptive love is calling into that life and calling into that reality, urging you, begging you to lay down your life on behalf of others, to enter through that death so that on the other side, you can enjoy the resurrection that comes from God's preemptive love in Christ. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, we thank you for the truth of that song that we opened with earlier this morning, where we claimed that your love, your power lives in us. And we reminded ourselves and dared ourselves to believe that we too could be a part of calming, raging seas. And we too could participate in resurrection. And we too could see life on the other side of death. Songs sing so easily. Allowing those songs and that power to actually animate our steps outside of this room is a whole nother matter. And so we humbly admit that we don't often live up to the songs we sing. We don't often live up to the ideals that we profess. We don't often live up to the greatest of our theology. We often allow the boringness of life to suffocate us. We often allow our love of life to suffocate actual living. We often make an idol out of security and self-preservation and we surrender any actual influence and impact that we might have. 
So we ask you again, Lord, this morning, as we need to ask you every hour, lessen our grip on life so that we can truly live. In Jesus' name. So, you know, as we sing that song, it makes me ask the question, is that true? Does, does our faith in Jesus, our faith in God, do we find courage in that? Do we believe the songs that we sing that if he is for us, nothing can stand against us? And really, what are we asking courage to do? Essentially, it, it comes down to what Jeremy and preemptive love is doing. That is love God, love our neighbor, and even love our enemy. And I guess you could say that that takes courage. And so my prayer is that we as a church and as individuals would find that courage to do just that, to lead our lives with love, both here in our, in our area of the world and, uh, and to support and encourage those who are doing it in, in faraway places. Can you thank Jeremy for being with us this morning? I appreciate it. Thanks, man. Uh, here's the deal. So... Um, we didn't really even get to talk much about how Preemptive Love got started, and that was with Jeremy helping uh, Iraqi children with heart defects uh, find surgeons uh, in other parts of the world that can could help them to do surgeries and, and get get them healed and, and, and healthy. So the story of Preemptive Love is in, in a book Jeremy wrote. The book is for free. All we ask you to do is fill out the, the little card you should have gotten when you came in, uh, and you can have a free copy. We're just asking for their uh, for you guys to take one per family so that we can get uh, everybody a copy of that. And also we have some of the soap uh, that have been made by uh, the ladies uh, available out at the uh, Resource Center as well. Okay? Again, don't forget next week, Gary Haugen, IJM will be with with us. Um, and uh, I, I look forward to that. And I look forward to seeing you again. Let me pray for us. Now, Father, now as the church leaves this place, as we go out into our homes, into our neighborhoods, even as some of us go to faraway places, uh, may we lead our lives with love. May we, may we do life the Jesus way. Give us courage to do that, I ask, that we might point people to you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Thanks for being here. We'll see you next Sunday.